Welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was born in 1834. He died in 1892. He's sometimes known as the Prince of Preachers, and our concern in this podcast, looking at particular sermons that he preached, is by no means to draw attention to the man, uh, not even just to celebrate the ministry, but to think particularly of the Messiah whom Spurgeon preached with the blessing of God. It's helping us to learn more of Christ and hopefully to become uh, better preachers ourselves if we preach the gospel, to become uh, more aware of our Lord and Saviour, to understand more what it means to serve Christ in our generation by learning from this servant of the Lord, imitating him just as he also imitated Christ. Each week we read through sermons day by day, and this week we're reading sermons 241 to 247. That's New Park Street Pulpit, Volume 5. Uh, the first of those is Predestination and Calling, 241, down to the Best of Masters, 247. Each week we feature a particular sermon, one that represents something of the, the breadth and the depth of Spurgeon's ministry across the years. And this week it's Mr. Fearing Comforted, number 246 in the sequence. Mr. Fearing Comforted. This sermon was preached in 1859 from Matthew 14 and verse 31. O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And that's the experience of Peter uh, as he walked on the water. You may want to read the uh, last part of that chapter in order to put the whole thing in context. But as so often, Spurgeon identifies a particular phrase, a keynote for his sermon, the lens through which he will view the whole. It's not that he's entirely isolating it from the rest of the, the passage, but it's the, the, the point at which he's going to uh, concentrate his thoughts in order to make his particular point. And Mr. Fearing is a, a character from Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and the name tells the tale. And Spurgeon is addressing the Mr. Fearings of his own day and our own. Some men of little faith, he says, are perpetually enshrouded with fears. Their faith seems only strong enough to enable them to doubt. And if you are a pastor of the church, an under-shepherd of Christ's flock, you will immediately recognize one, two, ten, twenty of the people to whom you have to minister. You will understand that there are some believers who are perpetually possessed of doubts and fears. They don't have uh, no faith because then they'd have no doubts, but they've got enough faith to be beset with doubts fairly constantly. And Spurgeon also reminds us that it's not just in our own character or personality, but sometimes that the Lord purposely leaves his children, withdraws the divine inflowings of his grace and permits them to begin to sink for the very reason that they may learn or understand that faith is not their own work, but is at first the gift of God and must always be maintained and kept alive in the heart by the fresh influence of the Holy Spirit. And that's a note that he's going to sound again and again in the course of this sermon, that our faith is strong when it looks out to Christ and our faith shakes 
when we dwell upon it in its own right. He also wants to remind us that all true Christians have their times of anxious questioning. The heart that has never doubted has not yet learned to believe. And so there are particular seasons where believers may be particularly troubled by fears. There are some Christians who are inclined to fear. And there are uh, many times when Christians, regardless of those other dynamics, may have anxiety and questioning. So Spurgeon wants to comfort. He wants to correct some of those errors of thought and feeling which lead us to doubt. He wants to divide the sermon then into two parts. He's going to address himself to those who are in great trouble with regard to temporal circumstances. You are God's people, but you are sorely tried and you have begun to doubt. And then deal with you upon spiritual matters. There are some here who are God's true, quickened and living people, but they are doubting. To them also I shall put the same question, O you of little faith, why do you doubt? So those are the uh, basic divisions that Spurgeon's going to be working with, the temporal circumstances and the spiritual matters. First then, with regard to temporal circumstances, God has not made for his people a smooth path to heaven. It's a, a generic reminder, if you will, that it's a weary way to get to glory. Religion helps us in trouble, says Spurgeon, but it doesn't suffer us or allow us to escape from it. And that's something that we genuinely often forget, that perhaps we uh, almost resent the fact that we're in difficulty or we become weary of the burdens and the trials of the way. Now, that weariness isn't in itself a sin, but the question is whether or not it brings us to an unrighteous doubting then of God. Now, Spurgeon's point, and we've already hinted at it again and again, is that we doubt like Simon Peter in the text because we look too much to second causes and too little at the first cause. That is, we don't look clearly enough and steadily enough at Christ as the first cause of our salvation and our security, and we concentrate too much on other things that in themselves maybe helps to us, but are not the foundation of our confidence. And, says Spurgeon, it's the same with each of us as with Peter. This is the reason why you doubt, because you are looking too much to the things that are seen and too little to your unseen friend who is behind your troubles and who shall come forth for your deliverance. So Peter, uh, in the ship, his master told him to go out. Peter walked across the water and he begins to wonder within his spirit, says Spurgeon, what manner of man he must be who has enabled him thus to tread the treacherous deep. But just then there comes howling across the sea a terrible blast of wind. It whistles in the ear of Peter and he says within himself, Ah, here comes an enormous billow driven forward by the blast. Now surely I must, I shall be overwhelmed. And no sooner does that thought enter his heart than down he goes and the waves begin to enclose him. So as long as Peter had his eye fixed on the one who called him, the Lord who stood before him, and he shut his eye to the billow and the blast, he did not sink. But the moment he shut his eye on Christ and looked at the stormy wind and the treacherous deep, down he went. So, as long as he was looking to Christ, 
he was safe. But as soon as he began to either trust in something else or consider the troubles that came against him, down he went. O soul, says Spurgeon, it were enough to make the mightiest heart doubt if it should look only at things that are seen. He that is nearest to the kingdom of heaven would have cause to droop and die if he had nothing to look at but that which eye can see and ear can hear. So he's he's concentrating on the faith that grasps that which is true despite appearances. I would remind you, says Spurgeon then, that you have forgotten to look to Christ since you have been in the trouble that has made you doubt. Have you not thought less of Christ than you ever did? I'm not supposing, he says, that you've neglected prayer or left your Bible unread, but have you had sweet thoughts of Christ as once was the case? You see, it's too easy for us to uh, go through the motions of religion without real communion with Christ. And though it is often in reading our Bibles and in prayer that we have that communion with Christ, the mere praying and reading in itself is not the same as communion with Christ in it. You can never find joy and peace, says Spurgeon, while you're looking at the things that are seen, the second causes of your trouble. Your only hope, your only refuge and joy must be to look to him who dwells within the veil. So when you look to outward providences, when you consider the things that are happening around you, you will sink. But if you look to Jesus Christ, then you will stand. And so he now wants to argue with us if we are the people of God. He wants to remind us of certain things that, like Peter, we enjoy in relation to Jesus Christ. And there are three in particular. First of all, you are Christ's servant. Christ is a good master, and you've never heard that he allowed one of his servants to be drowned while going on his errands. If Christ is calling you, then Christ is the one who will sustain you. If he calls you into the fire, he will bring you out of it. If he bids you walk on the sea, he will enable you to tread it in safety. Do not doubt, soul. If you had come there because of yourself, then you might fear. But since Christ put you there, he will bring you out again. You see, Spurgeon's emphasizing that in the path of obedience, we have nothing to fear. And this then is to be the pillar of your confidence. You are his servant. He will not leave you. You are where he put you. He cannot allow you to perish. So look away from the trouble that surrounds you to your master and to his hand that has planned all these things. And in looking to him, remember that it is the loving Christ who governs this situation. It is not a cruel tyrant. It is not a harsh master. It is the man who loved you and gave himself for you. It is he who says, look at me and do not be afraid. It is I. I am. I, your saviour, am the one who governs this whole experience. And remember beyond that, says Spurgeon, that Christ has helped you to this point. Look back over your whole experience of life to date and you will be astonished that you are what you are and that you are where you are. Your whole life as a Christian is a series of miracles, wonders linked unto wonders in one perpetual chain. You've been upheld until now by this Christ whose servant you are and do you doubt that he will keep you to the very end. 
So here's the point again. I have laboured to turn your eyes from what you are seeing to that which you cannot see, but in which you must believe. Oh, if I might be successful, though feeble my words, yet mighty should be the consolation which should flow from them. Just bear in mind here that uh, Spurgeon's made a bit of a shift because uh, Peter, Simon Peter, could see Christ, uh, at least with the eyes of flesh. Uh, but Spurgeon's reminding us that we need to keep looking to him with eyes of faith. Uh, and that's what perhaps Peter didn't do uh, in Spurgeon's interpretation of the text. And he then uh, closes this section about temporal challenges and looking to the difficulties of the present moment rather than to the enduring Christ with this little anecdote about a, a Christian minister who went to uh, an aged child of God and found him cast down in spirits because he had begun relying upon his savings to keep him in a happy condition rather than upon Christ to the very end. And the point is not he shouldn't have made any savings. The point is he ought not to have relied upon them and so taken his eyes off the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Spurgeon moves on to the second part of his discourse to speak of spiritual things. There are causes of more trouble than all your temporal trials. In the matters of the soul and of eternity, many doubts will arise. So Spurgeon's peeling back the layers of Christian experience here. Yes, there are many things in the world around us that might cause us to doubt. But what about the doubts that come up from within? And he divides them into two kinds, doubts of our present acceptance and doubts of our final perseverance. Many there are of God's people, he says, who are much vexed and troubled with doubts about their present acceptance. And by that he means whether or not God has accepted them in Christ, whether or not things are well with their soul. Perhaps they think back to a time when they knew they were a child of God. They were sure they belonged to Christ, but that's not their present experience. And Spurgeon says you have exactly the same answer as with regard to your temporal difficulties. Your doubts arise from looking to second causes and not to Christ. And he'll take us through some of those second causes. What are the things within us that make us doubt our present acceptance? Someone might say, because I feel my sin so much, because I, I can see perhaps I've become more aware of my transgression since I was converted than I ever knew beforehand. And to be honest, that's quite normal because the, the closer we come to God and the, the more we consider Christ, perhaps the more vile our own souls appear. And so you're looking at your sins. You're considering your sins more than you consider Christ. And someone else might say, no, it's not my sin that grieves me. It's that I don't feel my sin. So some doubt because of their sin, some doubt because they're concerned that they don't see their sin as great enough. 
No, says Spurgeon, that's second causes again. Turn your eye to Christ. He can cleanse your heart. He can create life and light and truth in the inward parts. He can wash you till you are whiter than snow. He can cleanse your soul and quicken it, make it live and feel and move so that it shall hear his simplest words and obey his whispered mandate. Where are your doubts coming from? You're looking at yourself. You're not looking at Christ. Another says, I could believe, despite all my sin and hardness of heart, but I've lost communion with Christ. It was summer with my soul, now it's winter, the sun is gone, the banqueting house is closed, there's no fruit on the table, no wine in the bottles of promise. I go to worship, I find no comfort, I read my Bible, I find no solace, I'm on my knees, but the stream of prayer itself seems to be a dry brook. Spurgeon says, Oh, those are precious things but it's Christ who saves you. It's not your communing that saves you, but Christ's dying. It is not Christ's comfortable visit to your soul that ensures your salvation. It is Christ's own visit to the house of mourning and to the garden of Gethsemane. And what Spurgeon seems to be emphasizing here, and bear in mind his own delight in the experimental or experiential knowledge of Christ is that the experience itself is not the grounds of your confidence. It is not your subjective sense of your salvation, but the objective realities of Christ's work upon which your soul must rest. So look not to these outward things, but look alone to Christ. Christ bleeding, Christ dying, Christ dead, Christ buried, Christ risen, Christ ascended, Christ interceding. That's the thing to look at, Christ and him only, and looking there you shall be comforted. Think of what you are or what you are not, and you will struggle, you will doubt, you will fear. But look to the full, final, finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and there and there only will you find an enduring confidence. But the second element uh, with regard to spiritual concerns, not just am I now accepted, but will I persevere and hold out to the end? And again, if you're a, a pastor, a shepherd of souls under Christ, then you will, you will doubtless experience uh, some of these things in your dealings with God's people. Perhaps even some who will never say they're Christians for fear that they might not last the course. And Truly, if we look within our own hearts, we find a thousand reasons why we might fall away. We are frail, we are weak, we are unreliable creatures. But it is not our faith that saves us. It is Christ who saves us by faith. We're abounding in temptations and struggles and distresses. And very often Satan himself will attack us and accuse us and say, how can someone like you expect to stand? Or why should Christ take care of you? But our answer must be, he is the Christ. He is not the kind of person that you are describing, Satan. He is the one who has purchased me with his own blood. If you cast yourself simply on Christ, then, says Spurgeon, neither death nor hell shall ever destroy you. Remember what good old Mr. Berridge said when he was met by a friend one morning. How do you do, Mr. Berridge? Pretty well, I thank you, said he, and as sure as he of heaven as if I were there, for I have a solid confidence in in Christ. Notice, not 
I've had devotions this morning and I feel good. Not, I went to church yesterday, so I'm uh, in pretty good condition. Not even, I've had joy in my soul and therefore I am confident. But I have a Christ who saves his people from their sins. And it would be a dishonor to him. It would be a uh, an exposing of him. It would undo him as savior if one of those who belong to him were ever lost. God in Christ will accomplish that, will finish that, will complete that which he has begun. So, says Spurgeon, soul, if you would know whether or not you are a child of God, do not look to yourself, but look to Christ. If you want to be saved, look to Christ, not self, but Jesus, not heart, but Christ, not man, but man's creator. O sinner, do not think that you are to bring anything to Christ to recommend you. That's that's true evangelical Calvinism. Don't try and bring something to trade or barter. Don't imagine that you need to have some prior experience. Come to him as you are. He does not want any good works of yours. He does not want any good feelings of yours. Come just as you are. All that you can want to fit you for heaven, he has bought for you and he will give you. All these freely you shall have for the asking. Only come and he will not cast you away. And isn't it ironic that as Christians we might say, yes, yes, that's the gospel that I believe. That's the gospel that saves sinners. That's the gospel we need to preach. And yet what do we do when we're in doubts and fears? Not that. We don't look to Christ. We don't remember that it's not built on our own frames and feelings, that it's not what we feel or how we feel or how much we feel or what we've done or or where we've done it or to what extent we've done it. No, it is Christ who saves us. Try him. Try him. Rest upon him. Believe him. Go to him in all your misery. Go to him in all your emptiness. Go to him in all your wretchedness. And he will save you from your sins. And it is in going on looking to him that little faith is sustained. So then, why should we be afraid? Why should we fear? Why should we be doubting? What is this little faith that so often cripples and undermines us? Let us look to Jesus Christ, says Spurgeon, and he says it well. Let us consider him who loved us and gave himself for us. Let us not look at second causes, either the troubles that come in against us or the things that we might imagine are contributions to our own safety and security. But let us go back to first things and consider him, consider Jesus Christ, fix our eyes upon him, delight ourselves in him, trust ourselves entirely to him, that we may not only be saved, but rejoice in the salvation that we have received from Jesus Christ. If you're a Mr. Fearing, or a Mrs. Fearing, or a Master Fearing, or a a Miss Fearing, if there's doubt and fear, look unto Christ. Look to him to be saved and look to him to be assured and sustained even in the midst of trouble. I hope that's been an encouragement to you as it's been to my own soul and I hope you'll continue reading or listening with us. Next week our featured sermon is number 251 on the necessity 
of the Spirit's work. So if you'd like to read ahead and you can only read one sermon, that's the one to read. If you're reading along with us, then from Sunday the 5th of September, it's Sermon 248, day by day through the week. And may God bless you and may God keep you because of his great mercy in Jesus Christ, our Saviour. My name is Jeremy Walker, and this is a Media Gratii production. I hope you've enjoyed From the Heart of Spurgeon. For more information, and to read along with us week by week, follow us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. That's Twitter at Reading Spurgeon.